Hello, and welcome to Teacher in Zion Podcast, a podcast for Christians, Mormons, ex-Mormons, and other Book of Mormon believers, or anyone questioning their faith or the church, with an emphasis on seeking the truth wherever it leads, but especially in gaining a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. This is your host, Doug Hatton, recording from my home office in Independence, Missouri. Thanks for joining us today. Is priesthood even a thing? This is part two in the series. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that first. When the Lord first revealed that there was a problem in our concept of priesthood, I did what I always do. I set about asking the Lord many questions. I studied the matter out, looking at the scriptures. I conversed with trusted friends. I did all of this because... Long ago, I learned that when God is trying to reveal something to us, or if we are desiring to better understand something, the Lord expects us to put some work into it. He expects us to fully study these things out. He expects us to prove his words and seek for understanding. And this is an important part of our stewardship. It's the ask, seek, and knock part of our stewardship. Over the years, I've spent time studying the various priesthood offices of the church and compared them with what we see in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And because of this, I was already aware of certain questions and possible discrepancies with our knowledge. As my mind got to work once more, pondering what the Lord had told me, I began to write in my journal some of those questions. David Whitmer wrote in his testimony, An Address to All Believers in Christ, that the word priesthood was never once used during his time in the church, not until Sidney Rigdon came along and persuaded Joseph of it, did it later make an appearance. In fact, the first use of that word appeared in an article published in 1834. Whitmer also stated that the term authority was what was originally used. He seemed to be implying that the use of the term priesthood may be problematic in some way, and possibly opening the door for further error in the church. So the question that arose in my mind, is this just a matter of using correct terminology? Are the words priesthood and authority really the same thing? Are we just looking at a matter of semantics? And if so, does it really matter if we use the term priesthood to describe the call or the ministry of men to perform certain functions? I spent considerable time contemplating these questions and going to God in prayer to find out. Each time I tried to disentangle the word priesthood from the errors and even satanic doctrines that were later introduced into the church, I felt the Holy Spirit resisting my attempt to do so. I got the sense that either the word itself was an offense under the terms of the new covenant, or that the word had perhaps become so thoroughly ensnared with the lofty pride of Ephraim and other doctrinal errors that crept into the church that we must extract ourselves from its use if we are to have any hope of being liberated from those errors. The more I contemplated the matter and prayerfully sought to understand, the more I got the distinct sense that not only was there a problem associated with how we have understood priesthood, but there may be an offense actually attached to the very use of the word. And that was a turning point for me, 
for I had previously assumed that we had only misunderstood the concept of priesthood in some way, not that the very concept of priesthood itself might be the problem. However, it would take me some time and the uncovering of additional knowledge, as well as a series of confirming witnesses, before I would finally begin to comprehend and eventually accept the truth the Lord seemed to be trying to reveal. As I previously stated, in seeking to understand what the Lord meant when he spoke to me by the voice of his Spirit and told me there was a problem in our beliefs about the priesthood, I turned to the Scriptures. I was already aware of the fact that the term priesthood was never used to describe the ministry of men set forth in the New Testament of the Bible. But in probing deeper, I learned that the word priesthood was also never used in the New Testament portion of the Book of Mormon once Christ appeared to the Nephites and established his church. This, of course, added to the mystery, knowing that Jesus had told Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery that the Book of Mormon contained, quote, all things written concerning the church, end quote, especially concerning what an intense focus the restored church ended up placing on the priesthood. I don't think it can be overstated just how big a part of the church culture it is. Is there a single church service or meeting where the word priesthood isn't uttered at least once? If a word count were conducted of every church meeting ever held in the last 185 years, I would guess the frequency with which the word priesthood has been uttered would be second only to the mention of Jesus Christ. As I look around, I see that questions regarding the priesthood seem to be a topic for discussion among many truth seekers in the Restoration at this time both those from RLDS and LDS perspectives, among colleagues, as well as other podcasters out there who are willing to discuss possible errors that have crept into the church. I watch as many skirt around this topic while they reveal abundant evidence of major issues with the priesthood. They stop short of coming out and plainly stating the obvious implications, and I can certainly understand that. God commanded us to use two books as our foundational scriptures, the Bible and the Book of Mormon. He explained that these two were to grow into one. What we find when we examine these two records is a priesthood that is mentioned under the Old Covenant, but not under the New Covenant, unless it is the royal priesthood of the believer, which both men and women carry, since Christ is within us, and he holds the priesthood. All priesthood before this time appears to have served as a type and shadow of Christ, who is to come. Now stay with me. We're going to go much deeper on this and prove these things out by way of reason and by taking a look at what is written in the scriptures, and then you can draw your own conclusion. Now what we do find under the new covenant is people who hear the voice of the Lord and respond. Some God will call upon in order to perform certain jobs or tasks. While some may have been ordained by another man, the vast majority of God's servants were not. Either they were ordained in the womb, ordained by the hand of an angel, or by Christ himself. But as often as not, they simply hear the call to go forth, and they obey. It would appear that their authority simply came by way of the will of God, 
and by hearing and obeying. Some are called to preach the gospel throughout the world. Originally, the word apostle wasn't thought of as a title, especially not a certain position in some church hierarchy, but it was instead a descriptor of a task they had been assigned. The word apostle in Greek literally means one who is sent out. When they spoke of themselves as an apostle, what they were simply communicating was that they were sent by Jesus. When Paul speaks about magnifying his office, the word office in Greek simply means a duty, a charge, or a trust of a sacred nature. Again, it isn't a position in a hierarchy of some organization. In other words, when Jesus brought about Paul's conversion and sent him out to preach the gospel, he was simply giving him a charge to perform, the duty that Christ had given him to do. It's not so much a title, but a job description. The twelve incorrectly imagined that Jesus might have been forming some kind of hierarchy, and therefore debated among themselves regarding what their rankings should be. But Jesus said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whosoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Mark chapter 10 verses 42 and 43. Furthermore, it should be noted that the Apostle Paul, as revered as he has become in Christianity, was never called through what we would imagine to be proper church channels. In fact, he was not only called, but began his ministry without even the knowledge of church leadership in Jerusalem, nor was he ever ordained by any authority from the church. In time, the other disciples and the rest of the church came to recognize his authority and calling by way of the Holy Spirit. Although God chooses men to perform certain ministerial functions, we see that he has also chosen women to minister in various capacities as well. The scriptures reveal that God speaks to both men and women, and even children have prophesied and even spoken mysteries. Although men and women may have differing gifts and callings, which we will get more into on the third episode of this series, so long as they are being obedient to the voice of the Spirit, they carry the authority of God to act according to his pleasure, whether you choose to recognize that authority or not. In the final analysis, there is a fundamental truth in what I just shared that we need to recognize. That if God asks you to do something, carried within that command is the authority to do it. Each and every one of you who has a relationship with Christ needs to embrace this truth and get it down in your heart because there is as much power in it as any concept of priesthood. Turning to Ephesians chapter 4, we read that Christ set some in the church to minister as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that they can equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Once again, it is my sincere belief that these are not really meant to be positions in some corporate hierarchy, nor even meant to be titles, which some today would print on a business card, but they were instead words that simply described the type of work God had asked them to perform. 
If Jesus asks you to teach, people will inevitably call you a teacher. An additional problem that needs to be worked out with the concept of priesthood is what to do with those women called into some sort of ministry. Priscilla was listed alongside her husband as one of the 70 evangelists in the early church. Did she hold priesthood? Or did they share in the priesthood together? Was she ordained along with her husband? Or did she simply tag along? We can find very clear examples of some very powerful ministries that women walked in, in both the Old and the New Testament. For example, we have a number of prophets who are women. Deborah is probably the most prominent one in all of Scripture, being clearly identified as an authority figure who spoke to Israel on behalf of God. In fact, she was a judge in Israel, and the people of Israel, even men in high positions, came to her to get the word of the Lord. It was by following her instructions that Israel was able to defeat an enemy that had sorely vexed them. Therefore, a thinking person must reasonably ask then, Is a prophet an office of priesthood? If it is, then you must either accept women in the priesthood, or you must accept the truth that anyone who has been given the gift of prophecy can be called a prophet, and being a prophet may not have anything at all to do with priesthood under the new covenant. Let me ask this question. How many prophets do you find in the Bible or the Book of Mormon who were ever ordained by any man? or by any church organization, or were set up as the king, or the president, or the primary leader of Israel. If you have never looked into this, this is your homework assignment. As a mentor and brother in Christ once told me many years ago, the truth can bear inspection. If it can't bear inspection, then it's not the truth. Never be afraid to question or examine what you have been taught. If the scriptures themselves do not support the doctrines you have been taught, then it's time to go to God and discover what is really going on. In 2021, sitting in my local congregation, the person preaching that day opened up to a passage from the Doctrine and Covenants. I never heard a word of the scripture he read, because the Holy Spirit spoke just then and asked me, Who is speaking in the two revelations on the priesthood in the Doctrine and Covenants? I shared this experience in a previous episode of the podcast and testified that I was initially stunned by the question. The two revelations on priesthood would be in RLDS section 17 and 104, and in the LDS it's section 20 and 107. Generally speaking, whenever Joseph Smith received a revelation from the Lord, Christ identified himself as the one speaking. But here I sat in wonderment, because God had just asked me who was speaking in these two revelations. Opening my Doctrine and Covenants, I read those two revelations, and to my astonishment, neither one identifies who is speaking. In fact, the wording of the text makes it quite plain that these revelations are not even attempting to read as the very words of God, but instead the words of a man simply declaring what he supposedly already knew and understood about the priesthood. In fact, at one point they even referred to God in the third person, and I was stunned. This is basically where every Mormon faction gets their understanding about priesthood. The source for the information in these two sections is never revealed. 
My immediate thought was, what are you trying to show me, Lord? Adding this knowledge to my investigation and to what the Holy Spirit had spoken to me, that our ideas about the priesthood were wrong, it seemed that the Lord was now possibly calling into question the very revelations we have on priesthood and looking at the various discrepancies between what we see in terms of offices of ministry in the Bible and Book of Mormon versus what we have in the Doctrine and Covenants and inquiring of the Lord to help me understand what he was trying to reveal, he spoke to me again just months ago, early in the fall of 2022. He told me that this would not simply be a small correction to our understanding, that it wasn't simply a matter of whether this office or that office should exist, or what it should be called. Instead, he let me know that, under no uncertain terms, the revelation of it would be a major paradigm shift one that would shake the foundation of our understanding about priesthood. It is no coincidence that the Spirit of God is working in the hearts and minds of many others in regards to the topic of priesthood. There is a reason for it. The time, I believe, has come. I believe that God desires to restore a proper understanding, correcting all those who are willing to humble themselves forsake the traditions of men, and believe what he has to show us. Any correction from the Lord must begin with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Our motives must be pure. The reason for our seeking must be so that we can draw closer to God and honor him in everything we do, and by the love of Christ, assist all those good souls who are trapped in a dead and broken religion filled with doctrinal tares. This gets back to my testimony in 2019, where immediately after quoting from the parable about a field in which a man planted wheat, only to have an enemy come along and plant tares under the cover of darkness, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, This is the story of the restoration. The man in the parable is the Lord. When the work of the restoration first began, God planted in the field the good doctrine of the Book of Mormon which was to correct the stumbling of the Gentiles and set us on the right path. However, straight away and under the cover of darkness, meaning Satan came along and planted doctrinal error, but that fact was hidden from us. We didn't realize at the time that error had crept in. The primary teaching about wheat and tares is that it is very hard to discern which is which until the end. As the harvest approaches, Only then, when the plants begin to bear their fruit, can we more easily discern the difference. We are now entering into the time of harvest, and the fruit of these things are becoming more readily apparent each day for those who look and have eyes to see. In the first couple of years after God called the church out of the wilderness, starting in 1828, and with the translation of the Book of Mormon in 1829, The church grew by leaps and bounds by 1830. During this time, men were called by God and set aside as servants to the body, while others were sent out to preach. Elders, priests, and teachers were the only ministries known in the church during this time, which was the same ministries mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Hundreds of people were baptized. The church was blessed. They were truly a happy people. Men, Women and children experienced the gifts of the Spirit in great abundance. Tremendous testimonies came out of this period of time. 
Many in the church spoke in tongues or interpreted. The sick were healed. The saints experienced a number of miracles, and some were even ministered to by angels, and many prophesied. These things occurred during the first two to three years, but especially so up until the church officially organized in 1830. Witnesses have gone on record to state that a gradual decline in the gifts began to happen after the organization in 1830. By 1832, according to revelation from the Lord, the entire church came under condemnation. More importantly for our investigation, before 1834, no one had even heard about any restoration of a priesthood, nor had anyone heard about the appearance of John the Baptist, or Peter, James, and John, nor was there any such thing as a division in the offices of ministry, such as Aaronic and Melchizedek. These are facts, and these facts alone should give you pause. Don't take my word for it. Conduct your own investigation. In 1835, the revelations given to individuals in the church, several of which God specifically commanded them not to publish, were published, but not before altering some of the earliest revelations. Many of those revelations, given up through June of 1829, were actually given by the same means as the Book of Mormon was translated. Revelations that were received by the gift and power of God through the Urim and Thummim were altered, both removing and adding words from those revelations. Many of those changes caused the revelations to state things in such a way as to be the very opposite from their original intent and meaning. That same year, they ordained men to high priest, and immediately upon ordination, some of the men were seized by evil spirits and their faces were contorted. Again, this should definitely give us reason for concern. It is about this time that a number of the men in the church began to realize that there was something very wrong. By 1838, we see the excommunication of the entire Whitmer family, as well as Oliver Cowdery, W.W. Phelps, and others. Many of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon plates chose to break fellowship with Joseph Smith and leave the church, believing Joseph to have been unduly influenced by men so as to commit grievous errors that changed both the direction and the very nature of the church in some very serious ways. Since the Book of Mormon had been given to the Gentiles expressly for the purpose of confounding false doctrines, laying down contentions, and making more plain that which is perhaps less so in the Bible. This record ought to be the very first place we turn to, in terms of our scriptures, in order to shed some light on this question of priesthood. So what do we find in the Book of Mormon? We find that they ordained elders, priests, and teachers. The twelve that were set aside by Jesus were also referred to as elders. Teachers taught. That's fairly easy to intuit. Jesus was considered a teacher by the Jews, which is why they called him rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. The Book of Mormon tells us that priests would preach and baptize. And under the New Covenant, according to Moroni, priests also administered emblems of the flesh and blood of Christ. For what it's worth, the words elder, priest, and teacher are never capitalized in the Book of Mormon. 
Furthermore, the word priesthood is never once used throughout the entirety of the Book of Mormon, except for the Book of Alma. The word is used by Alma himself, who was a high priest, but he used the term priesthood to refer exclusively to high priests, which he also refers to as the high priesthood, or the priesthood after the order of the Son of God, as well as the order of Melchizedek. All of these terms are used in one place in the book of Alma, as he speaks about this priesthood, what it is, and why it exists. So to summarize, the word priesthood is only used when speaking of high priests, and it is used during the time when the Nephites are still under the law of Moses. That certainly seems noteworthy, but what Alma reveals about this priesthood should be of particular interest to our investigation. What Alma says, beginning in chapter 9 of the RLDS edition of the Book of Mormon, or chapter 13 of the LDS, is as follows. And I would that you should remember that the Lord God ordained priests after his holy order. Now take note here of who ordained these priests. Not any man, but it is the Lord God himself ordaining these priests after his holy order. Alma goes on to say, And those priests were ordained after the order of his son, in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. Now that's important. Here we read that the purpose of this high priesthood was to prepare people so that they might know what manner to look forward to Christ. In other words, this priesthood after the order of the Son of God is a type and shadow of Christ himself who is to come. They stood in the place of Christ, being a symbol of that great high priest who was to come. Even as the law of Moses was a shadow of Christ, we learn from the New Testament that once the thing that is casting the shadow actually arrives, we no longer look to the shadow, but look to him whom the type and shadow represented. Once Christ has come, with the new covenant established, we set our eyes upon him and him alone, not the shadow that preceded his appearance. Continuing our reading in Alma about the priesthood, and this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God, on account of their exceeding faith and good works, in the first place being left to choose good or evil. Therefore, they, having chosen good, and exercising exceeding great faith, are called with a holy calling, Yea, with the holy calling which was prepared with and according to a preparatory redemption for such. Here we see that this ministry is preparatory in nature, so that people can prepare to receive Christ when he comes. Continuing on, Alma states, And thus being called by his holy calling, and ordained unto the high priesthood of the holy order of God, to teach his commandments unto the children of men, that they also might enter into his rest. This high priesthood being after the order of his son, which order was from the foundation of the world, or in other words, being without beginning or days or end of years, being prepared from eternity to all eternity, according to his foreknowledge of all things. Now they were ordained after this manner, being called with a holy calling, and ordained with a holy ordinance, and taking upon them 
the high priesthood of the holy order, which calling and ordinance and high priesthood is without beginning or end. Thus, they become high priests forever, after the order of the Son, the only begotten of the Father, who is without beginning of days or end of years, who is full of grace, equity, and truth. And thus it is. Amen. A careful examination of these words reveal not that this priesthood will continue in all ages, as I had once thought that it implied, but rather that those who have obtained this priesthood are forever high priests after the order of the Son of God. As it says, taking upon them the high priesthood of the holy order, which calling and ordinance and high priesthood is without beginning or end, thus they become high priests forever. Or in other words, those who have obtained this high calling will remain forever high priests. However, it does not say that this order would continue on the earth forever. As it tells us, the entire purpose of this order was preparatory in nature, so that people might know in what manner to look forward to Christ for redemption. Let us continue our reading in Alma. Now, as I said concerning the holy order of this high priesthood, there were many who were ordained and became high priests of God. And it was on account of their exceeding faith and repentance, and their righteousness before God, they choosing to repent and work righteousness rather than perish. Therefore they were called after this holy order, and were sanctified, and their garments were washed white through the blood of the Lamb. Now they, after being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, have their garments made white, being pure and spotless before God, could not look upon sin, save it were with abhorrence. And there were many who were made pure, and entered into the rest of the Lord their God. And now, my brethren, I would that you should humble yourselves before God, and bring forth fruit meat for repentance, that you may also enter into that rest. Yea, humble yourselves, even as the people in the days of Melchizedek, who was also a high priest after the same order which I have spoken, who also took upon him the high priesthood forever. And it was the same Melchizedek to whom Abraham paid tithes. Yea, even our father Abraham paid tithes of one-tenth part of all that he possessed. Now these ordinances were given after this manner, that thereby the people might look forward on the Son of God, it being a type of his order, or it being his order, and this, that they might look forward to him for remission of their sins, that they might enter into the rest of the Lord. Nephi, the son of Nephi, whose labors are recorded in Third Nephi, and which span a period before, during, and after the Savior's appearance, was the last high priest recorded in the Book of Mormon. It is recorded that he ministered with power and with great authority. And when Christ appeared to the Nephites, Jesus calls twelve men to be elders. One of those men was this same Nephi. Christ specifically calls Nephi forth, and at this point we see that Nephi lays down the role he had previously walked in to take on a new role. With the arrival of the one whom every high priest before him had testified of, Nephi would now become one of the twelve disciples, whom the Book of Mormon also called elders. And he would also specifically be granted by Christ, and under the new covenant, the power to baptize. 
At this point, everyone, including the disciples and even Nephi himself, will now be baptized again, this time into the new covenant. And with the coming of Christ, this is the end of any mention of priesthood, or high priests, or priesthood after the order of the Son of God, which Alma also called the order of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews will reveal that it is Jesus who takes up that mantle of high priest after the same order as Melchizedek. And because Christ is now our high priest, if he abides in us and we abide in him, then what need do we have of any other high priest? Not only that, but if the great high priest abides in us, then each of us, male and female alike, hold within us this royal priesthood that Peter speaks of in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. While we contemplate this, we should also take note that within the church now established by Christ under the new covenant, there is no mention of Aaronic priesthood either. The priests and teachers in the Book of Mormon were never Aaronic priesthood, neither is Aaronic priesthood even mentioned in the Old Testament portion of the Book of Mormon. The Nephites had no Levites, or even descendants of Aaron, and they never even make mention of that priesthood. The high priests of the Book of Mormon were all after the order of the Son of God, or in other words, the same order as Melchizedek, but we'll get more into the Aaronic priesthood later in the third episode of this series. What we do find is that there was a Melchizedek priesthood, otherwise called high priests, in the Book of Mormon, and those who held that priesthood pointed to Christ until he arrived on the scene. After that, what we find in the Book of Mormon are men who are set aside to serve the body as elders with a small e, priests with a small p, and teachers with a small t. So under the new covenant, there will continue to be specific kinds of ministry, both within and without the body, and it is Christ who decides how he wants them to serve. By the way, he still decides today whom he wants to call. That didn't change because he ascended. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, he is still the head of his own church. He directs it by the voice of the Spirit, and he alone will call whomever he will to serve him in whatever capacity he decides. The church does not get to decide, nor do men who are in authority, nor is anyone automatically called because they are a male of a certain age who is in good standing with the church organization. What we see in 3 Nephi is that Jesus specifically called Nephi forward and gave him the power to baptize. And later, he told the Nephites that before he left, he would appoint one to administer the sacrament. If that is how he did things when he first established his church, it is how he still does it today. And any church that is not adhering to his voice alone in regards to whom he calls and for what purpose is in apostasy. But where is the word priesthood to be found under the new covenant? Why is something which is supposedly so essential to the church not mentioned even once? As one brother put it in a recent conversation, what we see in the Book of Mormon is that Jesus gave certain people various jobs to perform. It was as simple as that. Are you willing to serve your fellow man? Christ may ask you to lower yourself and put on a servant's garment and serve others with the love of Christ in your heart. The haughty notions of priesthood we have carried around with us for so many years stands in opposition to what Jesus tells us. 
that he who would be greatest will be least in the kingdom and a servant of all. In other words, greatness in the eyes of God is not standing behind a raised podium and having people recognize you as someone whom they should look up to. Instead, greatness in the eyes of God is in humbling oneself, and rather than seeking to be revered, quietly go about the task of serving your fellow man with no thought of obtaining prominence. If there is a hierarchy or a corporate ladder in the body of Christ, then it is upside down from what we see in the world, where the greatest is the least and the least is the greatest. We claim to believe in this idea, but only in word, not in practice. At this point, a reasonable question that could be asked by someone is, why couldn't these ministries or callings simply be called priesthood? What's the harm after all? It's just a word. The first thing I'm going to ask anyone who might pose this question, and it's a legitimate question, is priesthood really just a word? and nothing more. Spend some time contemplating that, and go to God with that same question. See what he has to say. The second thing I would say in response is that Jesus is still the head of his church. So, if he set in place a priesthood under the new covenant, that is perfectly fine. But if he didn't, then why would we add anything to what he set up? Neither the New Testament portion of the Bible or the Book of Mormon ever speak of any priesthood except the priesthood every believer holds under the new covenant. Remember, we are warned not to add or take away from the words of Christ. If priesthood is just a word, why would we add it? And finally, I feel it is important to point out that the word priesthood certainly does carry with it certain connotations. Historically speaking, there is a lot of baggage attached to it. We find no such thing as either Aaronic or Melchizedek priesthood mentioned in the New Testament portion of the Bible or the Book of Mormon. Now it is one thing to imagine that this rather important piece of information was removed from the Bible by the great and abominable church. But why is it that the very record that Jesus personally made sure was kept by the Nephites and brought forth in order to remedy this problem is somehow also missing one of the most basic tenets of Mormonism today? Nothing at all is mentioned about a priesthood under the New Covenant. More especially, nothing at all is written concerning a division in the priesthood between Aaronic and Melchizedek. Additionally, the office of high priest is entirely missing after the New Covenant in both books of Scripture. There is also no mention of presidents of any kind. Although the Book of Mormon does frequently speak of the gift of prophecy and the gift of revelation, there is no office of prophet listed as a ministry that anyone was ever ordained to. Jesus did not set aside or ordain a prophet among the Nephites, much less a prophet, seer, revelator, and president of the church. Nor did he do so in the Bible. If there is a pattern in all things, why is it that Christ did not set this up when he was here to establish his church? Saints of the Restoration, wake up. How can our concept of priesthood be taught as a fundamental, even a foundational part of the church when it is not even taught in the core scriptures that God gave us to settle doctrinal disputes and to understand correctly his doctrine and his way and his church? 
How is it that the Lord could tell Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery through the Urim and Thummim to rely on the words written in the Book of Mormon, quote, For in them are all things written concerning my church, end quote. And yet there is nothing at all written about our priesthood structure or these additional offices and the rules that go with each one of them. Why do the scriptures not reveal this corporate ladder or hierarchy which tells us who is to be subordinate to whom? Didn't Jesus warn his disciples it was not to be this way among them? As one human being to another, I'm asking you, how does that make any sense? If it was so important, wouldn't it have been included in the writings of either the Bible or the Book of Mormon? Why would the Catholic Church, which is so very big on the idea of priesthood, choose to remove the concept of priesthood from the New Testament? Why is it that the restored church of 1829 and 1830 is thriving and full of the gifts of the Spirit, but somehow without any knowledge of this priesthood? If it is so important, why wasn't the priesthood even mentioned until 1834? two years after the church had fallen under condemnation. Nowhere do we find that God ever stated that they had come out from that condemnation. Isn't that important? If they did not repent, but continued in their errors, then we must acknowledge that errors, when not tended to, tend to multiply. There's an old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. Satan cannot defeat the truth or a divine move of God by simply opposing it from the outside. For as it says, the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. As a friend, Todd Peterson, recently stated, pining for the priesthood exclusive authority has been the great game of the saints since Satan first joined the Restoration Movement. I'll give you a moment to meditate on that. In the Book of Mormon, we learned that Satan had taken away many plain and precious truths. Satan couldn't take the Book of Mormon away from us. He tried by stealing the 116 pages, but the Book of Mormon was translated and published. So the only method he could employ in order to rob us of the plain and precious truths was not to take away, but rather to add to the Word of God add to the doctrine of Christ as clearly established in Third Nephi, and by adding all kinds of doctrines and mysteries and getting us to focus on the organizational hierarchy and the elevation and the reverence of men in the priesthood, he tricked us into doing what Nephi testified to be a curse. Cursed is he that putteth his trust in man. Again, after the whole church came under condemnation, I can find no evidence that the church ever repented other than possibly those men who left the church on the grounds that the church had gone astray. What we see instead is that the saints from this time forward are not only divided, but driven from one place to another. We do not find the Lord intervening on their behalf, nor does he ever send them one like Moses to redeem Zion as they were promised if they would repent. The saints who were driven out of Jackson County were promised that they themselves would regain their properties and their houses if they would repent. It never happened. Eyewitnesses to the plates, handpicked by God himself, ended up leaving the church one by one, all except for the members of the Smith family. At Far West, we see the birth of the Danites by the hand of Sidney Rigdon, which likely came about because of a revelation given by Joseph Smith that, I'm sorry to say, 
violates the very tenets of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Contrary to the teachings of both the Bible and the Book of Mormon, this revelation, still found in our Doctrine and Covenants, told the saints a lie, seemingly revealing that vengeance doesn't necessarily belong to the Lord after all, but instead, after giving your enemy a couple of stern warnings, you could not just defend yourself if attacked, but actually go on the offensive and go to your enemies where they lived and exact revenge upon them. Under the same oaths that were birthed in the secret combinations between Cain and the devil, the Danites were formed to execute the vengeance of the Lord upon perceived enemies of the church. For a time, David and John Whitmer believed that their very lives were under threat by these Danites. By the time the church ends up in Far West and then Nauvoo, a very different spirit seems to be presiding over the church, or at least much of the church. There are dark covenants and secret oaths being made. Certainly, an argument could be made that many in the church no longer lived according to the principles outlined in the Book of Mormon. Instead, men were secretly conspiring to bring about polygamy. Joseph began to think God was once a man and that we ourselves will become exalted as a God over our own earth someday. And the story of the grove has now been modified to include two personages in the grove, not just one. Jesus is no longer, as the Book of Mormon reveals him, the eternal God, with no beginning or end, both the Father and the Son, the very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. But he is instead morphed into Lucifer's sibling, no longer the creator, but simply part of the creation, no different than we ourselves, except that he agreed to be sacrificed. It seems that the biggest issue in the church during this time frame is that hardly anyone, including far too many men in the priesthood, seem to have experienced the mighty change of heart that the Book of Mormon speaks of, which can only be wrought by abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. And yet, with the whole church under condemnation and driven from one place to the next by their enemies, they somehow vainly imagined that instead of repenting and going through this transformation of their lives, even as we read occurred among the early Christians, which transformation through the love of Christ had the power to convert even their enemies and much of the world, that God would somehow overlook this essential requirement and instead be concerned with things like baptism for the dead and speeches about the exaltation of man. How can any man be exalted in any way, shape, or form, and not even know Jesus? How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. Isaiah fourteen twelve through 14 In the end, what we end up with, are conspiring men in high places in a power struggle over the church. Joseph and Hiram Smith are murdered after the mob had came and left, having been driven away by the gunshots that Joseph fired at them. After the mob regrouped and returned to the scene, they found Joseph Smith dead. At the court trial, the two men of the church who witnessed the murder of Joseph Smith did not bother to show up to testify. So the men from the mob who had been implicated were set free. Was that maybe because it wasn't anyone from the mob who had killed them? 
and by placing these two witnesses on the stand, they would have opened themselves up for questioning under oath. I happen to believe that Joseph had a premonition of his impending death, and that he repented of a number of things near the end of his life. I also think he may have been trying to pull the church out of the grip of secret combinations and planned to deal blow against those who supported the doctrine of polygamy. And I also believe he was probably killed for that. Long before I ever heard any evidence to suggest that anyone other than a mob of Gentiles had killed Joseph Smith, the Holy Spirit spoke to me about his death. And from that point on, I knew in my heart that it was the result of a conspiracy. What a dark time in the church history we are contemplating. But what I am convinced most people do not realize is just how far from the path the church had strayed even before the Nauvoo period. I believe Joseph was a good man, that he wanted to do that which was right. But he was also a man with certain weaknesses, especially in giving in to the persuasions of other men. Even as the Lord indicated, he was also warned that if he was not careful, he would fall. This is no secret. And this probably may also be the very reason why the angel told Joseph that his name would be had for both good and evil. It may also be why the Lord, in trying to prevent these issues in the first place, told Joseph that he was to pretend to have no other gift other than translating the Book of Mormon, because no other gift would be given to him. Regardless of whatever errors Joseph may have committed, I do believe his ultimate intentions were good, but as the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Not that I believe Joseph went to hell. I think he died trying to regain control of the church so that he could guide it back into what he considered a better path. I think he had come to realize that powers of darkness had gotten a foothold in the church. As to what extent he realized he may have played a role in that, I do not know. At the very least, I believe he intended to rid the church of at least one abominable doctrine, and perhaps remove certain men from power. But it was too late. And sometimes, a people must be given over to their errors, so that they can plumb the depths of iniquity and taste the bitter fruit of their endeavors. And this, so that they will eventually learn the errors of their ways, repent, and return unto the Lord. Some day, I know we will get to meet Joseph Smith, either in paradise, in the presence of the Lord, or in the resurrection. And I believe that on that day, we will also see with perfect clarity all of our faults, not only his, but our own. But in brotherly love, we will also praise God for his grace and for his great forgiveness. We will surely stand in awe of God's ability to do his work in spite of our weaknesses and our many failings. That no matter how much we screw things up, God was able to work all those things together for our good, both the good and the bad things. That even our worst mistakes can be used to our benefit, to grow and teach us. The restoration began with great promise, with the Holy Spirit and with the signs of the believers showing forth miracles, the joy of the Lord abode among the saints. But over time, they had forgotten the record the Lord had brought forth, which plainly showed us how to come unto Christ and experience a rebirth, so that we might be changed creatures and walk in the kingdom of God. 
thereby becoming a light to the world and a city set on a hill. Instead, we became a hiss and a byword. Ensnared by ever-evolving doctrines and mysteries, we forgot what was most important, to experience that mighty change of heart. But because they had not, not long after they had first begun on that path, they were diverted from it. Their hearts and their minds were darkened. Before long, there were those who set their eyes on the lusts of the flesh or on achieving power and dominance over others. The love of Christ was no longer in their hearts as it should, and so the church ended up in Utah with the kind of leadership who could boast how they would happily and without hesitation impale a woman with a javelin if they ever caught her in the act of adultery, all the while committing whoredoms themselves in the name of righteousness. How far we had fallen from the love of God and the love of our fellow man. Which love can only come through a changed nature when we have Christ in our heart? This episode has gotten quite long, so I will stop here. We will need at least one more episode to finish this investigation into the nature of priesthood and whether it was ever intended by Christ to exist under the new covenant. I can imagine this is quite a roller coaster ride for some of you, but I appreciate you sticking with me and at least hearing me out until the end. At that point, it will be up to each one of you to go to the Lord in prayer and decide for yourself. Please send your comments or your questions to teacherinzion at gmail.com. Until next time, God bless. Join us for discussion in our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash hope of Zion or at our YouTube channel teacher in Zion that's the word teacher space and in Zion spelled as one word my books can be found at amazon.com forward slash author forward slash Douglas Hatton that's H-A-T like a hat on your head T-E-N, like the number 10. Until next time.